Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life. Good to see you here. And good to see, I can't see you, those of you who are out there. But I'm glad that you are out there. Also, as always, thanks to John Watson, our floor manager, and Tim Leatherwood, and Richard Wingfield. And um, I want to thank uh, Wayne and Calista Herbert, and of course, Olivia uh, Watson and William Budge, who just hang on our every word. I mean, they... They do. They take notes and mm -hmm. do all that stuff. Yeah. Olivia is my writing advisor. <laughs> How is that possible? She's that good. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I think every week we make John a little nervous that we're not going to start on time. We're, we, getting, we're on time. We're on time. We're good. We have one announcement. We can make it in a minute. Okay. Is it about the uh, rockets? <laughs> kind of really punched this. Okay, man. let's get serious here. <laughs> Silence. So our affirmation is that sacred mystery is right here, right now, with us, and uh, we pray into sacred mystery these words that we offer ourselves to you to build with us and do with us what you please. Relieve us from of bondage to the ego that we may better grow into our true selves. Okay, here it comes. Well, we have a, a little announcement before the call. I You snuck this in. No, this is different. Oh. Yeah, we forgot to do the announcement. Okay. Yeah, and Calista had one. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go backwards for a moment. There is a November 4th Ordinary Women meeting, um, 12 to 2, here in well, here on this campus in room 312. And Helen Spa is going to guide you all through a, a creative practice, a healing arts circle, or at least talk about them. So November 4th, 12 to 2. The other announcement that we have after you sort of already got us all calm, now I'm making everyone think again, or write something down. We also, it's that time of year where we start considering, we do have a chunk of money to give away at the end of the year. You know, we've been giving it away periodically throughout this year to, um, I think, what we would call a kind of crisis year with rent relief, disaster relief, um, uh, Afghan refugees. So, um, there, but there's still money left. So I'd just like for you all to start thinking about um, We'll put a link up to the form. Just start thinking about if you have requests where you think money needs to go by the end of this year. Okay? Um, that's the announcement. Ready? And I really, I also, I just want to take a minute to talk about the importance of a daily spiritual practice. <laughs> and um, just really emphasize that there are ways you can do this starting Tuesday <laughs> when the Astros start playing the Braves. This is like a kind of recapturing of the 80s and 90s. I don't know how many baseball fans there actually are in this room, but the Braves took the pennant from us for two decades. So this is like <laughs> to just, you know, a moment to just sort of get back in. I don't know. I feel like baseball is my one commitment to my ego, just my one. <laughs> and um, I went to the game on Friday where they, um, yeah, and uh, none throughout the first pitch, and it was glorious. And there was a whole box full of sisters, baseball fans, I'm telling you, it's a spiritual practice. It can work. Bill doesn't believe me. Um, and it was really fun. They, this group of nuns in full habit were in the center field box watching the game. And just going to say, that's why we won. God also likes the Astros. He's redeemed them. He, she, they. <laughs> well, <clears throat> Holly made a vow right before class that before I die, she's going to take me to a game. So I got 20 years. Yeah, you got like 20, 25 years. Yeah, yeah. 20 yeah. years to go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I also told you that I would only be insufferable for like two more weeks. And then you said, will it only all be two a, more will weeks? Will it all be over in two weeks? <laughs> yes, by, by next, uh, really 10 days. Well, yeah. you were really good. You take it to the World Series. 
So just to add to this, the guy who cuts my hair is a huge uh, Astros fan. And uh, I had a different version of this picture of the nun throwing out the first pitch. And I showed it to him, and he said that um, Mattress Mac is the guy who made this possible, yeah, so paid cool. for all the tickets and arranged it and did all that stuff. Yeah. So that's yeah. good to know. Yeah. All right. Okay. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are, on your spiritual journey, you, you are, are welcome, welcome here. here. So in doing the uh, head part of my spiritual practice, and that is uh, what I do in, in reading books, uh, listening to podcasts and lectures, and, and right now I am um, re-listening to perhaps for maybe the fifth or sixth time this set of CDs that I got from the Center for Action and Contemplation, and I know that nobody but relics listen to CDs anymore, but you can go onto their website and get this as an MP3. That's what they're called. File. Yeah. And um, you'll see the influence of Jim Finley on me a little bit, a smidgen later on in this talk today. Mm -hmm. I think Finley is one of our modern day mystics. And he's really, really, really worth listening to. It's worth the investment of your time and energy to do that. But whatever I am doing in these head activities to hopefully increase my knowledge and information as well as wisdom and understanding for our spiritual journey, the ones from which I gain the most are the things that I encounter that leave me both unsettled and excited. The Astros can do that for you. <laughs> I know they do that for you. <laughs> because I've seen you after a game loss. Yeah, not, not a pretty picture. It makes you really deal really authentically with all of your emotions. That's good. I'm a seven on the Enneagram. We don't like to deal with yeah, emotions. Right. I'm a six. We love them. <laughs> Especially ones that make us angry. So I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I can get so easily caught up in my various addictive behaviors that I, can, I go unconscious so easily that I need to be awakened. And so being exposed to things that kind of jar me awake is very helpful for me. Which is one of the reasons I am really excited that we're doing this deep dive into John. Because uh, today we're gonna have an opportunity to um, deal with something that I think is really, really, really important for us. And next week as well, we're gonna be dealing with anger and rage. Not that any of you ever had that issue, but for those other people out there. So I think that in you know, doing John, we can not only learn something at the religious literacy level, but if we hear it correctly, we can become unsettled, surprised, uh, and, and energized. So we're gonna take a look, I hope a fresh one, at uh, Jesus, who would not adjust to the system. He would not adjust to his culture and we're calling this time today um, creative maladjustment, mm. which is what I think we need to be up to also. No one needs to be mindlessly adjusted to the culture in which we live. So we introduced the first sign in the book of signs from the Gospel of John last week, and we did so without actually reading the parable. So I'm going to read it today. It's really Brief. This is one of the best known stories in all of the Bible. There was a wedding in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were guests also. When they started running low on wine at the wedding banquet, Jesus' mother told him, they're just about out of wine. And Jesus said, is that any of our business, mother, yours or mine? This isn't my time. Don't push me. Great way to talk to the virgin. She wasn't a virgin. She went ahead anyway, telling the servants, whatever he does, whatever he tells you, do it. 
Six stoneware water pots were there, used by the Jews for ritual washings. Each held 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus ordered the servants, fill the pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. Now fill your pitchers and take them to the host, Jesus said, and they did. When the host tasted the water that had become wine, he didn't know what had just happened, but the servants, of course, knew. He called out to the bridegroom, Everybody I know begins with their finest wines, and after the guests have had their fill, brings in the cheap stuff. But you've saved the best till now. This act in Cana of Galilee was the first sign Jesus gave, the first glimpse of his glory, and the disciples believed him. Now, when you want to come close to what Jesus actually said and did, when the scholars want to do that, they start with the Gospel of Thomas, then go to the Gospel of Mark, and then to Matthew and Luke. Thomas, in my belief, predates Luke, uh, Mark. Matthew and Luke take a lot of their material directly from the Gospel of Mark. But when we want to know what the early church thought about Jesus and what they got from the narrative that they began to create, we look at the Gospel of John. John is not a history book, but a series of parables about Jesus with theological explanations about these parables put into the gospel. So at the beginning of the gospel of John is this parable designed to help us create the best mindset possible to receive the, te the teachings of Jesus that are to come. So as I said, this is one of the best known stories in the Bible. Jesus turns water into wine. Now, the scholars I trust say that the historical event that is behind this parable probably came near the end of the ministry of Jesus, shortly before he was crucified. But John puts it at the beginning in his telling of the Jesus story. It's a very simple tale. It's uncomplicated. There's a wedding to which Jesus and his disciples have been invited. It's a festive time. The house is filled with people who were banqueting and celebrating. And then, as in any good melodrama, the plot thickens. The wine runs out <laughs> with still the house filled with thirsty guests. This is going to be a great embarrassment to the host who have been so short-sighted and careless for the welfare and happiness of his guests. But then, just in the nick of time, Jesus saves the day by changing about 120 gallons of water <laughs> into wine. Disaster turns into wonder. The story has a happy ending. The host is complimented. I would like you to notice that in the story, the host and... and um, the master of ceremonies, the bridegroom, that none of them is surprised about this. They're not, they don't arrive back and say, oh, wow, we just saw a miracle. They don't do that. Now, the servants who didn't know what was going on, they don't make a big deal out of it either. It's a good story. It's and a great story. Yeah, yeah. Um, we forgot the wine, but maybe by the end of the class, your coffee will, will transform. Um, I want to comment for a second on this idea of creative maladjustment. Um, titles are Bill's uh, playful practice of being <laughs> creative with words. And there are two components just within the title that I think are essential. Um, one is discomfort. Change is uncomfortable. It's so tempting to lean back into our old ways of thinking, our old ways of being, to do things the way they've always been done. It's hard to be in the liminal space. But the, the, in the liminal space is really that physical and mental space between one destination and another. But here's the thing. We're almost always in the liminal space. You were presumably somewhere before you were here. On your way here, you were in a liminal space before you got here. Then when you got here, between walking through the parking lot and getting into this room was a liminal space. Right now is a liminal space from before ordinary life to after ordinary life. We're always in between. We're always somewhere that is not here or there. <laughs> My point is to invite 
um, conscious presence into that in-between, to be present in the discomfort and to the things that are always changing, which really is everything. The second thing that I think is um, cool to pay attention to in this title is the idea of radical imagination. So being present doesn't imply that you can't be continuously threading the past, the present, and the future. It doesn't mean forget the past, don't think about the future. It's kind of like braiding them all together. I think Jesus does this really well. He takes old paradigms, he illustrates them with relevant symbols of the day, and then he invites totally new ways about thinking about the future. The old way is like water, which has always been used in this one way for ritual cleanings. We want to imagine a world that is like wine, which invites creativity, fun, spontaneity, joy. The radical imagination, this is a quote from an article, is the ability to imagine the world, life, and social institutions not as they are, but as they might otherwise be. It's the courage and the intelligence to recognize that the world can and should be changed. It's not just about dreaming of different futures, it's also about bringing these possibilities back from the future to work on the present, to inspire action and new forms of solidarity today. We become a little like time travelers when we're operating in the radical imagination. We're going back, we're looking forward, we're coming here. I think that Jesus was a teacher of the radical imagination. And this movement is both personal, so it happens on the inside, and it also happens in community. We change within, and in that changing within, we're continually adding to the change that's happening outside of us. The question I think will be part of, um, the question that we should ask, I think, is whether we will consciously be part of that change or will we keep trying to resist it? Things are already changing, evolving, moving all the time. Do we resist or do we accept? The water into wine story represents, in my mind, an arc of some kind, a movement from one level of consciousness to another. A reflection question I think we can put in our pockets during this time is, what's in your water jar right now that needs transforming? It could be anger. It could be grief. It could be denial, whatever it is. What's in our water jar that needs transforming? The three most fascinating elements about this story to me are, first, the transgression and transformation of boundaries. I'll talk about that in a second. Number two is the role of the divine feminine. Before really rereading this story this week, I had not really considered the mother of the Lord's role in this story. It was about Jesus. It was about Jesus' miracle, Jesus performing this act of turning water into wine, but I really saw the feminine in this very differently. And then third, the importance of healthy individuation. I'll again get into that in a minute. There's an arc in this story that fits inside of kind of the um, larger Judeo-Christian history. The turning of water into wine is part of a process that started way Back in Exodus, I am not an Old Testament scholar. I will leave that to you. Um, but in the Old Testament, with Moses, God says to Moses, strike this rock and water, sorry, I went to your slide. Water will become, let me start over. Strike this rock and water will come out for the people to drink. The stone represents one type of mental construct. The water represents another kind of mental construct. And then the wine in the New Testament is a, yet another kind of mental construct. The stone, we could say, represents a patriarchal, authoritarian, kind of disembodied, out there God. It says, I should do X, Y, or Z because I was told to do it. It relies on doctrine. There's no real feeling or engagement in, in stone thinking. In the water stage, we might actually long for understanding. We might start to ask ourselves, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I, am I relating to what I'm doing? Do I believe in what I'm doing? And then in the wine stage, which is this story brought forth by an incarnated feminine God, again, the, the mother of the Lord, we might actually begin to change and act with genuine love and humanity. Jesus, I think, is a remarkable picture of a whole human. And for me, it is his more human moment, so I, I take him to be very petulant with his mother 
in this story. <laughs> and in those moments is when he becomes more believable to me. Because if I can see Jesus as human, more human, I can also see myself as being able to transform. So um, forensic archaeologists, scholars who study the culture of the first century world, um, and from other disciplines, they continue to discover and thus reconstruct what life was like in the time of Jesus, in that world and in that culture. And based on the documents we have, not only those included in the Christian collection, but in other writings of the time, scholars have been able to construct a story of what more than likely happened, what more than likely happened uh, to lay the foundation for this story of water and wine. I could fill the entire time today talking about what I'm about to say. I'm going to give you the very condensed form. But I'm basing what I want to say on the work of John Dominic Crossan, on the work of Bruce Chilton, Raymond Brown, Stephen Mitchell, and other scholars who have written about this period, John Dominic Crossan and Bruce Ch uh, Chilton in particular. This is what they reconstruct, okay? So we don't have a video recording, nobody was writing things down, but this is what they hypothesize. At around the age 12, Jesus goes with his family to Jerusalem for a fall festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a festival of family celebration and solidarity. Now, not all families could make the pilgrimage because enough people had to stay behind to sustain and protect the community. Synagogues, local synagogues, made the decision about who could go to this festival. They went to make a sacrifice in the temple, which was very difficult for people in Nazareth to do because Nazareth didn't have a currency-based economy. The system in which Jesus lived was more of a barter kind of community. My wheat for your wine, my carpentry for your weaving, etc., etc. Now, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the temple which Jesus saw was by far the biggest structure in the known world at that time. It was where God lived. It had taken years to build. It will come up several times in, it, we'll hear about it again next week. It will come up several times in the Gospel of John, the, the importance of the temple, because Jesus is going to liken his body to the temple. It was built by Herod mm -hmm. to placate the Jews and then by the Jews to show their understanding of God. So in a town outside of Jerusalem, about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem, was a town called Bethany. Two of Mary's relatives, Martha and Miriam, lived there. And Jesus and his family likely stayed there before going on to Jerusalem. The entire journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem would have taken about five days. The difference between Nazareth and Bethany was dramatic. Nazareth would be more like a third world country slum area. And Bethany was really upper class. Because being so close to Jerusalem, they benefited from the patronage system that came out of, out of Jerusalem. So in Nazareth, people lived on the edge. In Bethany, there was wealth. And... Um, I think Jesus' very negative views about money and the injustice of the domination system probably grows from the kind of experience of seeing wealthy people benefiting from the system, being compromised by the system, uh, as he did perhaps on this trip. So to go into Jerusalem and to approach the temple, which as I said, just the outer court is as big as five football fields was an awesome thing to somebody who was 12 or 13 years old. It was awesome in every way. Now, before you could enter even the courtyard of the temple, what had to happen? You had to be ritually washed. Fast forward, 
What were the jars in the parable about? They were for the ritual cleansing of people who needed cleansing. Water into wine. So everybody who entered the temple had to be bathed by immersion. And as a result of excavation that's been discovered, there was a system of canal, uh, canals and channels and cisterns so that all temple goers might make themselves clean during this final ascent up into the presence of the Holy One. Jesus was not old enough to participate in this, but it did give him a glimpse of something he had ached for because of the state of, of his birth. He had been rejected from so much. So I want to be clear. These ritual washings were not something that happened once in a lifetime like we treat baptism. There were hundreds of ways to be declared unclean in the Jewish system. So probably many times a day, people had to go down into full immersion to be cleansed to come back up. Get the picture? Hundreds of times, not hundreds of times, but many, many times. So <clears throat> after each incident of being declared unclean, you had to be ritually washed, and then you had to pay for that. Hmm. This is part of the domination system. So John the baptizer decided, this is not a good system. I'm going to take a stand against it. So he went out into the desert, into the Jordan, and invited people to come and be ritually cleaned in the water free of charge. It really upset the religious leaders. Now, if we had met John, certainly if John were here, we would know he was crazy. I mean, he behaved in a really nutsy way. And, and as you know, before the story goes very far, he's going to get himself beheaded. But if you imagine John and those who were attracted to his teachings, and if you know anything about Jewish body prayer, they would immerse themselves in the Jordan River over and over and over and over. It became like a hypnotic ritual. Mm. It introduced kind of a trance state, mystical state. <clears throat> Pardon me. This is the way that Jews practice their mysticism. Jesus became a disciple of John's and participated in these rituals. However, when Jesus started his own ministry, now you've got to picture an apprentice time of Jesus from 13 to 30, mm. long time to hang out with John and to practice these things and to be introduced into Jewish mysticism. But when Jesus started his own ministry, he began practices that declared people clean or forgiven without the benefit of ritual immersion. It's a transformation taking place here. It culminates in this story. So Jesus goes about saying, you're clean, you're clean, you're clean, you're clean, free of charge, free health care. And the religious authorities didn't like it. Now, <clears throat> near the end of his ministry, which is historically probably where this, the, the history behind the story takes place, but John puts it at the beginning, uh, Je Jesus returns home, but he's not the same person. <clears throat> so they go to a wedding, he and his disciples. And we'll see Jesus frequently use weddings as a teaching tool, metaphors for his teaching. So in the afternoon on the first day, the wine runs out. And what Jesus did, and I promise you, this is more dramatic than if he had actually turned water into wine. What Jesus did was drink and invite others to drink the waters of purification insisting that purity came from the inside. Further, purity comes from Galilee, not from Jerusalem. And this 
was a new concept of a new purity enacted in Galilee out of reach of Herod, who by this time had beheaded John the Baptist. So this was a victory of the kind of purity Jesus had in mind over the uncleanness that the religious order of his time prescribed. This is an example of creative maladjustment. Now, it may seem rude and offensive to us that Jesus spoke to his mother in this way. Uh, but again, this is symbolic of Jesus' willingness to let go of everything that culture and religion thought was sacred in order to make his message clear that his understanding of God, whom he called Abba, was not bound by humanly constructed rules. You mentioned coming home, right? And this is kind of, we, when we, he comes home in a new way. And this is part of the individuation, too, of kind of establishing himself as um, different from where he's from. And, um, you know, I, I read an interesting article that had a little different idea about Jesus' speaking to his mother in this way. I'll talk about it in a second, but I took this story as the first sign that kind of launched Jesus' public ministry. If we're, if we're putting the signs in order, he comes home, he has this um, return, and he's, I don't know what we want to say, proving himself? I'm not sure. Just establishing himself as a wise teacher. And um, I also read that the mother of Jesus is absolutely central to it, as I said before. So I'm going to talk about this story rather concretely, pretend for a second that it is actually true, so that we can really understand the roles that happen. It's very, very likely that this story is not actually true, and that Mary is more of a symbol in this story than she is a person. I think she's both. So I came as uh, nuns have been central in my life this week. <laughs> one at a baseball game and one in this reading. But I came across an interesting article by a Catholic sister, Rita H. Williams, that gives a kind of plausible explanation for the social circumstances that surround this story and just how many rules were broken in it. She points out, number one, oh, we missed a couple of years, huh? the gendered division of labor and space. So that's one thing to sort of hold in our minds about the culture. Number two in this culture, the importance of the mother-son relationship. And many presume Mary at this point to have been widowed, um, but that understanding of the mother-son relationship is crucial. Uh, I'll say a little bit that, that, that as many cultures that value sons, um, sons were doted on, sons were but, you know, the mother was very much the caregiver for the son, and then it would then in turn become the son's role to really honor the mother um, as he grew up. So this is kind of where we are. We still know that there are a lot of cultures in, in, alive today that very, are very preferential towards sons. Um, this was true in Jesus' time. And number three, my student come up. Number three, reciprocal honor is a really big deal in this story. So understanding these social rules set us up for the transgression and transformation of boundaries that I mentioned before. Males were typically responsible for outside work. They worked in fields, in marketplaces, they were in courts. And it's in this sphere, in this outside work, where men usually encounter threats to their honor. Females are associated with inside work, domestic spaces, communal wells and ovens, which we'll see later in the Gospel of John and they were often servants. So they are responsible for the physical, social, and communal uh, well-beings of the family and of the whole community. At, I don't think that's very different than how we operate today. But at events like weddings, much like some Orthodox Jewish weddings in Islamic traditions today, men and women were in totally separate spaces during the celebration. So there was a male room and there was a female room. They did not intermix. So this is the first rule that's broken. A servant tells the mother of the Lord that she, as she is called in this story, that they are out of wine. In telling her, the servant takes the risk to expose the potential dishonor on the family, the host family, that would fall upon them. So weddings were uh, between, we assume this to be a wedding between a virgin and a, a man, but these weddings usually lasted for seven days. 
and it was a thing of virtue to just lavishly entertain your guests the entire time. So we're on the third day and the wine is out. Had they run out of wine and the guests found out about it, this party would have definitely not made the top 20 events of the year in the who's who's column. Like they're, they would be way down on the honor roll. <laughs> it would have instead ended up in the gossip columns. Like, can you believe that they ran out of wine? And the family would have been disgraced. How did Mary come to be privy to this information? Who was she to this family? We can likely assume that Mary was part of this family's trusted inner circle, that she had some connection with them. Perhaps she walked by the kitchens by accident and on the way saw the servants in a panic. I don't know. Perhaps a servant came and whispered something in her ear, knowing Mary would be discreet about it. Even the writers of John, this is what the Catholic Sisters article says. She says, even the writers of John are attentive to protecting the family's honor by not giving too much away. The second rule that's broken, presumably at his mother's request, Jesus came into the kitchen with the servants, who are female, who were so an entire room of female servants. This is the kind of thing that leads John Sanford, the writer of Mystical Christianity, to say that Jesus was a friend of women. He did not abide by these social rules that men and women can't intermix. And he didn't abide by the hierarchy. The third rule that I think is not broken but is challenged is that Jesus appears to rebuke his mother. It was not uncommon for men to respond to women in this way. Why is it my concern, right? And because that was, that was part of the social hierarchy, part of the patriarchy. It was, um, I love that sort of line. What business is this of ours, mother? Right? <laughs> I, I, I kind of imagine that maybe Jesus didn't want to attend this wedding in the first place, that maybe she was like, you've got to come. They're family friends, right? I, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I kind of imagine Jesus over there in the garden with his disciples, maybe smoking, maybe drinking that jug of wine that was missing, telling jokes, you think? Yeah. Magic tricks? I, I don't know. <laughs> but, and I mean, I... I kind of enjoy being playful with Jesus a little bit. I, I mean, I, so if I'm, if I'm disrespecting anyone in here, please forgive me. But I, it's part of the fun for me to not take myself too seriously and therefore sometimes maybe these stories too seriously and just imagine what else could be going on. So if I explore this idea of Jesus as a kind of petulant man-child, <laughs> maybe, maybe this act of rebellion had allowed also for his transformation. The first rule that's broken is that the mother of the Lord stands her ground. She displays confidence and she challenges Jesus right back. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall just to see the look <laughs> that she gave him <laughs> when he sassed her. Like, you know, you know, every single person in this room has a mother that probably gave them that look, right? I am a mother. I have tried to give that look. Sometimes my kids laugh. Sometimes they're like, ooh. So it's in this moment when he probably earned his last name, Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> so <laughs> what's going on over there? <laughs> um, I just think there must have been so much meta-communication in her kind of silent glare. The tension in this moment is thick. She says, Jesus, we're out of wine. He says, what business is that of mine? And he, she just looks at him and then says, do whatever Jesus says to do, right? But she doesn't shame him. She does not actually even verbally or publicly address his um, insubordinates, if you will. She has the grace to not even act offended. She just bests him in this moment. She leaves him with the choice to make. I, I kind of imagine that she doesn't even stick around to see what choice she makes, that she sort of says, whatever he says, you do it. And in this ironic way, Jesus allows his mother to shine, to be this sort of strong, confident, honorable woman. And it's in a feminine space in the kitchen with the servants inspired by a feminine voice that Jesus chooses to uphold honor. This was unheard of. I think what I want would like to yeah. add here, I know that the Ordinary Life book group read the fourth gospel. Mm 
and some of you may be reading John Sanford's book. I recommend it's both are readable. Neither one of these commentaries on the Gospel of John refer to the turning of water into wine. They don't do it. Mm -hmm. What they do talk about is exactly what Holly's talking about, the role of the feminine in this story. Mm -hmm. and, and we make a mistake if we say, oh, this is all about the water and the wine. This is really about a, a turning upside down of family values. Mm -hmm. And at some point, Jesus kind of imbibing the feminine value. Yeah. 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 So I'll, I'll get more into how I was struck by the importance of this exchange in a moment. But I want to say something about reciprocity. The mother of the Lord understood reciprocity. In this exchange, she imparts this value upon Jesus. Everyone's honor is kind of bound up in this story. Perhaps most importantly, the dignity of the servants, who would surely have been admonished, maybe even lost their jobs or cast out had they been responsible for running out of wine. And presumably Mary does not go running off to the host and say, oh my gosh, they ran out of wine. She has the grace to just deal with it and to, in the least of these, in other words, the servants, get to keep their dignity as well. This value of reciprocity, and in this scene it's exemplified by the feminine, stays with Jesus. Again, he takes that value in, the value of reciprocity, and it's central throughout his teachings. What happens to me also happens to you. What is good for the whole is good for the one. So... The, the people who produced the Gospel of John had discovered in Jesus a way to live that brought them into expanded life and living. And so the Gospel of John was written to, give, to convince others about the importance and wisdom of joining this movement. And it was also to keep the story alive because there were many people who didn't know the story and they would be curious. And so that was one of the ways to keep it going. Throughout the gospel, we're going to hear seven stories. We're going to hear seven parables used to sell this argument that you should join us. Now, the water and the wine is the first of the seven. Out of all the ways this gospel might have begun, out of all of the stories that might have been told about Jesus, this is the first. In a gospel having to do with a subject as serious as one could undertake, this is the first. Now, when you and I get serious, when we have something serious to talk about, we lean in and we kind of soften our voice and say, now I want you to pay attention to this. Mm. We even look grim. <laughs> now, John. As he is heading into telling about what he thinks is the salvation of the world, he tells a story that isn't solemn, solemn or serious. And yes, I see Jesus more as a stand-up. <laughs> he, I mean, people were attracted to him because of the stories he told yeah. and the way that he engaged them. <clears throat> so this is a story about the time that Jesus made people happy and joyful and a little drunk. <laughs> <laughs> with no apparent theological lesson in store. Now, what is John saying here? What John is saying is, when you are considering the story of the God who's come among us, remember that at the bottom of everything, it is God's will to cram your life with animation and joy. So if at any time in dealing with what it means for you, to be made whole and have life and have it abundantly, a phrase we get from John, if you would feel out of place at the merry festivities of the Cana wedding, then something is basically wrong. Something's dropped out of the story for you. Mm. Uh, yes, life has its tragic element to it. There's a valid reason for pervasive anxiety about all sorts of things, local and global. And yet what I get from the teaching of Jesus, and I believe this is true for all authentic and wise spiritual teachers and practices, is that whatever is put on our agenda in the living of our lives on this planet, we can deal with such matters authentically only when there is joyful, 
confidence and confident joy in our hearts. Over many, many years of both being in ministry and doing counseling work that I do, I would say more often than not, the people who have talked to me about their experiences in church or with religion in general have reported to me experiences where they have been left feeling guilty, shamed, or judged. So I want to say to you, that if you have an image of God that's still wagging its finger at you, you've not met the God of Jesus. We have a moral obligation to be happy. I'm serious. That's a joke. <laughs> Two of the happiest people I know have no reason to be happy. I'm thinking specifically about the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh. Both of them have been exiled from their home country, and yet you can't find a picture of them not smiling hmm. because they know they, they live their lives from another base. Um, as I read somewhere with reference to the immigrant situation all over the world, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. Mm -hmm. So you might say that the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh are creatively maladjusted. Mm. I read that poem in here a couple weeks ago. It's called Home by Warson Shire, who herself was a, a refugee. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it was when we were talking about the initial exodus of Afghans from Afghanistan. I've had this intense privilege of working with many immigrant families throughout my teaching career. Most of my students were Latino immigrants, Afro-Caribbean Im immigrants, and some documented, some undocumented, and so many of these families are creative and resilient and have absolutely turned water into wine. Before this week's diving into this first sign, um, as I said before, I'd not paid that much attention to Jesus's mother in it. I was so stirred this week, obviously, because I keep harping on it. Let me come back to her. <laughs> um, but, you know, maybe it's because I'm in the thick of motherhood, trying to raise three boys a little differently than the world wants me to. Um, I took some inspiration from Mary, her confidence, her calm, her healthy way of making space for Jesus to choose and demonstrate his independence. Uh, Mary's present at three pivotal moments in Jesus's life. Of course, his birth. Like every other human being on the, and animal on the planet, Jesus was born of a woman. She offers this layup, this kind of fastball down the middle for his individuation at this wedding in Cana, too. And that, that for me, is the key takeaway for the story. And then she's there for the death on the cross at his feet. But back to the individuation piece. Carl Jung once said, or is said to have said, the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of his parents. <laughs> yeah, all of us can feel that on some level. Even though there's tension in this exchange between mother and son, she doesn't shame him. She, neither, she doesn't overtly impose her wishes upon him and saying, whatever he tells you to do, do it. After which I kind of imagine her throwing a shawl over her shoulder and just walking out. She gives him the space and the autonomy to make a choice. She doesn't hover, she doesn't intervene, she doesn't wag her finger. I think Jesus knows what she wants him to do, but I don't get the sense that he does it out of obligation. I think that something dawns on him in this moment, and that's the reciprocity value, the value of the feminine, and, and that's an incredibly feminine value. What is good for me is good for you. What I give will return to me tenfold. I take this one jug, it might become 120 gallons, right? More wine equals more community and more joy. Some years ago, I, <laughs> I coached, I think they were four and five at the time, I coached my little kid's soccer team because there was no other parent willing to, and I played soccer, so I was like, sure, I'll, I'll do it. Um, much of my identity growing up was as an athlete, and that was a big part of who I was. But if you've ever coached little kids, you have to let go of any competitive edge. <laughs> Especially in soccer, they're like a swarm of bees around a single flower. And there's no strategy. They all just try to go to the ball or run away from it because they don't want to get hit by it. 
but there was one little boy who did not have a competitive bone in his body. He wanted to wear galoshes on the field. He was much more interested in like picking at the grass than kicking the ball. So during games, just to kind of help him feel like he had a role, I would hold his hand and um, run down the field with him. And the games were hilarious. My own child would be down at the end making grass angels. Another kid who was, who was super competitive and very good would be crying because he didn't score a goal and then run off the field to get his mom to hold him. So he would, you know, just, their little kids are just funny and some are just picking their noses. But, but I held this little boy's hand up and down the field just to kind of keep him engaged. I didn't try to get in the way. I wasn't trying to help my team out or score a goal for us. I just wanted him to feel like he was doing something. And the league we were in allowed one coach per team to be on the field with these little guys. Again, I think the age group was three to six. I mean, they're tiny people. Um, but uh, this one Saturday, I'm genuinely just laughing at this whole scene playing out before me. And this mother, this other mother, runs out onto the field, grabs my arm, spins me around, and says, you are blocking our goal. OK. Um, <laughs> So that's an example of someone who's projecting her unlived life onto a child. Their win equals her success, right? I am guilty of that, absolutely. I'm not suggesting, I, I haven't grabbed someone by the arm and spun them around, <laughs> but I'm very aware that sometimes my own child's failures feel like mine. And I'm very aware that I lie awake at night going, how was I a terrible mother today? So, but her behavior was a powerful mirror for me. Do I do this to my kids? Do I make them feel like if they don't win, I don't love them or that I'm angry? In this story, Mary is the example of what to do. Teach your kids these important values of kindness, reciprocity, and love. And then when the moment comes, hope that they choose that. Hope they choose the path that creates more love for more people. Jesus chose that path. Mary gave him the opportunity to demonstrate those values. The creative feminine challenges him to shift into a whole new level of consciousness. So last week, I mentioned to you um, a model of faith development that I got from Brian McLaren. And I also mentioned in the preview that went out from about the class today that his book, Faith After Doubt, is one that I would recommend to you. Um, the model of faith development that McLaren has is very simple. It begins in simplicity and moves through complexity. And if we keep doing our work, it takes us into perplexity and then hopefully into harmony. A number of years ago at a Richard Rohr conference, I heard Bill Plotkin who has done a lot of work on soul development. He has a whole other model of faith development that I've shared in here a long time ago. Bill Plotkin said that his group's research reflected that 80% of adult population in the United States was arrested at late adolescent development, 80%. This is the level of complexity at best and Simplicity, really. That's where most people in this culture live, the level of simplicity. It's stone thinking. It's, I'll do it because you tell me to do it, and I won't really further that. Well, it's at this level that people are focused on knowing for sure who's in and who's out, yeah. who's good and who's bad, who's right and who's wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, so my question is, what can you and I do to imagine, create, and or contribute to a spiritual movement that goes to helping people in our culture and in the culture itself mature in their moral and spiritual development? How can we ourselves evolve in the direction of harmony before it's too late? How can we practice being creative, mal creatively maladjusted? Now, you may hate or be disappointed in, or not be surprised by my answer to these questions. <laughs> Wait for it. 
We have to do our own inner work. <laughs> I know I do. You have to decide for yourself. But we have spent so many years immersed in a culture developing dualistic minds, dividing the world into good and bad, us against them, that it's going to take hard work and often agonizing work to challenge these rigid categories. It takes effort to hold our dualism in a bigger harmony that doesn't dissolve differences but rather holds them in love. Now, I don't remember the exact date I first got connected to the teachings of Richard Rohr. Sometime in the mid-80s, I think. But I do remember one of the first of his teachings that hit home for me. The name of his organization is the Center for Contemplation and Action. And he says the most important word in that phrase is the word and. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Contemplation and action. The teaching that hit home with me was this one. The world will be saved by contemplation, and contemplation is hard work. It is. I think that's the reason that so many people give up on it after a first few feeble attempts. Now, I know that doesn't apply to any of you. <laughs> Talking about other people out there. This is what Roar says. Contemplation is an entirely different way of knowing reality that has the power to move us beyond mere ideology and dualistic thinking. Believe me, it is major surgery, and we must practice it for years to begin to rewire our egocentric responses. For years. And further, he states that this is what elders of a generation must pass on to the next generation so that they don't have to start at ground zero. So you make this commitment to have this daily rendezvous with God, with sacred mystery, with whatever word you want to use. You commit to a sustained receptivity to a beautiful world that you know in your heart is possible, but we have not yet been able to grasp. And you know that it is not within your power to make the awakening to harmony happen, but it is within your power to create the circumstance in which the receptivity to harmony can happen. That makes sense? You can't make it happen, but you can create the circumstance. Just like a poet can't make a poem happen, but the poet can create the circumstance in which the poet is likely to happen. And so, <clears throat> you sit in this space of receptivity every day, rain or shine, whether you feel like it or not, day after day, day after day, day after day, for 80 years. And then you come tell me how it's going. This is not three months. Not three days, not a short trip. Now, this is not get to get connected to God. We're already connected to God. This is to see how our consciousness of being connected shapes our lives and our living in the various worlds in which we live on this planet. Now, what I heard most recently in one of my sits went something like this. Bill, this is so nice. You and me meeting like this. We've been doing it for a long time. But you know, for many years, these meetings have been on your terms. It's uh, time for me to take charge. And my response is, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and what I heard back was, exactly. Mm. Exactly. So in John, we're going to hear Jesus say, Follow me. We say, sure thing. I'm ready. Let's yeah. go. Where to? You know where this is heading, don't you? <laughs> to the cross. Mm. Not something that we gape at and say, oh, look what he did for me. 
but someplace where we know we're going to end up meaning, and this is where Finley influences talk, meaning knowing that we got to go through this really narrow gate and we cannot take anything through that gate that is any less than absolute love for ourselves, for others, and for this planet. That's death to the ego, mm. which we both think defines, what we think defines us and gives us security has got to die. We've got to pass through that gate. Just keep it for Astro's games. Hmm? Just keep the ego for Astro's games. So she keeps bringing the rockets up for some reason. I don't know. So this is a journey that invites us to leave behind early stages of faith development and develop the faith that knows that no matter what, there is a love that sustains us through everything. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a confession to make. I didn't um, invent the phrase we're using for the, today's title. I uh, got it from Martin Luther King, Jr. He once said, <clears throat> saving our world from pending doom will not come through the complacent adjustment of a conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. And this, I believe, and we shall find it true going forward through John, is the territory we're called to cross over into. Hmm. Stay tuned. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember <laughs> this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll see you here next week. <laughs>